sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you here are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Oh, we have something special this time around? Yes. Or something a long time coming, as I've had an expert on the topic alongside me for dozens of shows already, and we're only now tackling the topic. Bees! Yes, bees. Unless you're a brand new listener, you probably know that Mrs. Carswell has her own apiary on the premises and is an expert on bees and beekeeping and honey and uh, bee history and folklore, too, as it uh, turns out. Maybe not all the sort of lore you like to include in the show. Well, we got a fair amount from you, from your books. Yes, I, I just mean you're the one digging up all the stories about dead bodies and bees. The morbid stuff. Well, uh, that is sort of the angle of the show. It's expected. Not by my mother. That's not how she thinks about bees. Ah, well, Mrs. Carswell's mother is also a beekeeper. It goes back generations in her family. I was hoping she'd enjoy hearing something I participated in, but I'm not even sure I want her to listen to this one. Oh, it can't be that bad. There's so much you left out. Oh, we can only include so much, and I did consult you throughout the process. I feel like you're turning on me just as I'm trying to put together something you'd like. You did it out of guilt. I did not. The rug? You had blood on your hands. Oh my god, and not you... this again. I can't help it. I'm still having nightmares. It's been three weeks. Look... I appreciate what you're trying to do, and I think listeners will enjoy the show. You're just presenting bees in a different light than how I think of them. We think of them. Anyway, aren't things a little better now that I moved the rug out of the library? I know where you put it, and it still makes me uncomfortable, even with the door locked. I'm sorry, that's how it is. But I do like that bee song you found. Arthur Askey? Well, that's nice, at least. Yes, I'd like to send it to Mother. I can do that. Not you. You don't need to. It would be better if it came from me. I think she would be uncomfortable with you sending it directly. Whatever that means. Maybe I will get the sheet music. Do we have a piano? What? You've lived here for almost three years. Have you seen one? Uh, I'm under a lot of stress. Okay. You don't have to get snippy. Anyway, uh, episode 64, Bees, Gods, Death, and Honey. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. But in Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. I'll have uh, more on Patreon and the new batch of Bone and Sickle shirts uh, at the end of our show. Oh, yes, yes, the bees. Bees filling a basket placed over the head of Nicolas Cage in the dreadful and unnecessary 2006 remake of a 1973 film we've doted on quite a bit in this show, The Wicker Man. 
the agricultural failure that necessitates a sacrifice in the original was changed from produce to uh, honey in the remake, hence the uh, handiness of the bees. Uh, oddly, this scene wasn't even in the theatrical release and only appears on an unrated version of the DVD, none of which would matter if it hadn't been embraced on the internet as comedy gold in uh, dozens of remixes, for instance. Or Of course, this is hardly the first horror film to exploit bees as a means of torture. In 1992, a much better urban folklore-driven film made this central to its plot. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. The semi-mythical Candyman here is not so much associated with candy, but with honey or the bees used by a mob to torture him when he was in his uh, mortal form. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. A maniacal killer breeds a strain of giant bees that can kill a human being on command. And that's pretty much the plot of the 1967 Amicus production, The Deadly Bees, uh, probably only known today as its many flaws, including uh, poorly composited bees swirling over characters, earned it the uh, Mystery Science Theater treatment back in uh, 1998. Terrifying buzzing sound is the last they will ever hear. Of course, the real golden age of bad bee movies was the late 1970s when American media became preoccupied with stories of Africanized honeybees, or killer bees, in South America and possibly moving north. The result was a uh, swarm of uh, dramatizations for TV and film. Of Brazilians were killed when they were attacked by swarms of the so-called Africanized bees. Scientists have known that a swarm of killer bees has been headed towards the United States. There was the killer bees in 1974, the savage bees in 1976, terror out of the sky in 1978, and then, that same year... Now, Warner Brothers presents Irwin Allen's The Swarm. Which pushed the genre over the edge, uh, an actual box office and critical disaster for the director formerly known as the Master of Disasters. And there were outliers, like 1973's... The Invasion of the Bee Girls. Not a killer bee film or any other easy-to-name category, but it was an oddball sci-fi sexploitation film featuring a mad scientist transforming women into bee girls who sexually prey on the male population of a small California town. The Invasion of the Bee Girls. Now, if we jump back a couple millennia or so, we'll find a very different kind of bee girl or bee maiden, as they're sometimes called in Greek mythology. These were the nurses of the infant Zeus, who is something of a refugee when our story begins. The problem is his father Cronus has been eating all of Zeus's siblings to keep them from overthrowing him, to prevent the infant sky god from being eaten, and to punish Cronus for gobbling up the other kids. Zeus's mother, Rhea, hands Cronus a swaddled stone, which he swallows, believing it's Zeus. There are a couple versions of what happens next, but in ours, Rhea hands off the infant Zeus to Arcadian nymphs who hide him in a cave in Crete, which is where our bee maidens come in. In a loose way, these uh, bee maidens are a type of nymph. Nymphs, of course, are always female. Uh, known as Melissa, uh, the plural would be Melia, uh, which is more or less still the modern Greek word for bee. It's uh, also the word used for ash tree, and uh, they're occasionally also called ash tree nymphs, and this is because uh, ash trees uh, exude a sugary substance, which the Greeks regarded as equivalent to honey. The word bee, I should mention, is derived from honey, or more literally would just be one associated with honey. So. All of these words are combined in the name Melissa. 
In the specific case of Zeus's nurses, the connection with honey is obvious, as they are said to have uh, fed the infant Zeus on honey. He's also given milk from a figure called Amothea, who is sometimes treated as a goat and sometimes as a nymph herself. As uh, always with females in Greek mythology, the honey nymphs come in threes, so when given names, they are Ida, named for the mountain in which the cave is uh, said to be located, Althea, and Algestea. They're all daughters of uh, Melissius, meaning... Bee man! His uh, brother, by the way, is often said to be the Titan Astraeus, meaning... The starry one! Because the uh, Greeks believed that the honey bees collected from the fields had fallen from the stars. And it was sometimes for that reason also called astron, meaning... Star fallen. We'll see this link between honey and the cosmos, or the other world, crop up frequently as we uh, look into all this. There's another triad of uh, female bee characters, um, virginal sisters, called by the Greeks Hithria. They were imagined as uh, some amalgam of human and bee, perhaps as uh, having the bodies and wings of bees and heads of women as, as represented in a series of uh, gold plaques from the um, 7th century BC, which were discovered in Rhodes and now are in the British Museum. I'll uh, put an image of those in the show notes. As uh, in our story of Zeus, the Thria were said to have raised Apollo on Mount Parnassus, and they're also likely the same triad associated with a cave on the mountain, the uh, Corsian Cave, one sacred to Pan and Dionysus. A, a spring, the uh, Castalian Spring, also on Parnassus, uh, one where uh, visitors to the uh, Delphic Oracle would uh, ceremonially wash, is also attached sometimes to the uh, Thria, who... Uh, I should also mention, served an oracular function. Their name actually translates as pebbles, as it was by pebbles dropped into an urn, or um, sometimes by the observation of birds in flight that they uh, foretold what was to come. And a uh, final uh, bee-like triad of females, which may or may not be the same as the Thria, are generally just called the bee maidens. The characters are described in a... uh, Hymn to Hermes, written in the style and at the time of Homer. Uh, Hermes, I should mention, acquired his mastery of magic from Apollo, who learned the same in his youth from the divine Thria. So again, we have the bees and the otherworldly. Um, by the way, the term we're going to hear uh, was translated as white meal, but it could actually also mean pollen. So from the uh, hymn to Hermes. There are certain holy ones, sisters born, three virgins gifted with wings. Their heads are besprinkled with white meal, and they dwell under a ridge of Parnassus. From their home, they fly now here, now there, feeding on honeycomb and bringing all things to pass. And when they are inspired through eating yellow honey, they are willing to speak truth. But if they be deprived of the gods' sweet food, then they speak falsely, as they swarm in and out together. So again, that association between honey and the other world. This connection specifically between uh, bees and honey and uh, female seers or priestesses is a very old element of Aegean culture. The uh, bee was a symbol of uh, Potnia, the mistress or great mother of the uh, Minoan uh, Mycenaean religion that prefigured Greek beliefs. Uh, Priestesses of Artemis and Demeter were themselves referred to as bees. And while this wasn't the case for the uh, Pythia, the seer of uh, Delphi, there are some alleged connections between the beehive and the uh, Omphalus stone, the uh, hollow stone through which arose vapors that uh, intoxicated and inspired the uh, ecstatic utterances of the uh, Pythia. Uh, Some writers have compared its shape to a beehive, which it does look like, but that particular form for beehives, I believe, only evolved or was imposed on bees in uh, later beekeeping practices in uh, Northern Europe. Many of you would have heard theories about possible intoxicants or entheogens used in rituals like this, which uh, brings to mind, not uh, specifically in the case of Delphi, but 
in general, the role of mead, the alcoholic beverage made from honey. Long before wine was uh, first fermented in the Aegean Peninsula, mead was around, creating that state the Greeks would compare to divine inspiration. And uh, honey is also uh, frequently cited by many scholars as the real-world model for the uh, nectar and ambrosia enjoyed by the gods, all of which strengthens this connection between bees and the world beyond. What a glorious thing to be, a healthy, grown-up, busy, busy bee, filing away the passing hours, pinching all the pollen from the coffee flowers. I'd like to be a busy, busy bee, being just as busy as a bee can be, flying round the garden, the sweetest ever seen, taking back the honey to the dear old queen. I just thought we could use a little musical break before launching into our next segment, which has to do with death and rebirth and... Uh, then more death. It's the Bee Song from 1937, the one Mrs. Carswell was talking about earlier. It was a signature song of British comedian Arthur Askey. He's a representative of the uh, sort of quirky and forgotten music that's showcased at the end of each bonus episode I produce for Patreon supporters if you'd like uh, more of this sort of thing. You know where to find it. Now, to the topic of bees and dead cattle. Let's begin with Aristius. Uh, he was a minor god associated with agricultural tasks and traditions, with uh, horticulture and hunting, uh, brewing, dairying, orchards, and the preparation of things like olive oil and dried or smoked and pickled foods, a sort of a countrified jack-of-all-trades. And, uh, of course, he was associated with bees and beekeeping. The Latin poet Virgil made him a major figure in his book Georgica, the title of which translates as... Agricultural Things. It's in the fourth chapter that Aristius and the bees are highlighted, I should make uh, clear, probably, that this is uh, hardly a sort of uh, how-to uh, farmer's manual. The text is interwoven with dramatic mythological narratives, including a uh, primary source for the story of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. And this is where Aristius figures in as uh, Eurydice dies and begins her famous uh, sojourn in Hades, thanks to her being bitten by a snake while fleeing Aristius. Yeah, this is uh, one version of her death, at least. In any case, the shade of Eurydice, now in Hades, and punishes Aristius. Uh, somehow it's all his fault. She stumbled into the snake, I don't know. Anyway, she causes the death of all his honeybees, and then Aristius uh, wrestles with that old shapeshifter, Proteus, in order to force him to reveal how he may undo the wrong against Eurydice and refill his hive with bees. The answer is he must sacrifice four bulls, drain them of blood, and leave them in a grove for a period. And then things get weird. Virgil says, Later, when the ninth dawn had ushered in her rising beams, he offers to Orpheus the funeral dues and revisits the grove. But here he espies a portent, Sudden and wondrous to tell, throughout the paunch, amid the molten flesh of the oxen, bees buzzing and swarming forth from the ruptured sides, then trailing in vast clouds, till, at last, on a treetop, they stream together and hang in clusters from the bending boughs. This uh, odd scene, the process of bees spawned from a dead bovine, is known as begonia, from the Greek for... Ox. And... Spawn. And it doesn't seem to have been a unique literary creation of Virgil's, as the notions found elsewhere, in uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, for instance, where the ox was to be buried with only its horns protruding, 
and uh, also in a much older story from the uh, Hebrew scriptures, which I'll look at shortly. This uh, superstition persisted for centuries and was found in the 10th century Byzantine collection of agricultural lore, the Yoponica, where it becomes more, uh, well, uh, Byzantine in its uh, detail. Build a house ten cubits high with all the sides of equal dimensions, with one door and four windows, one on each side, and put an ox into it. Thirty months old, very fat and fleshy. Let a number of young men kill him by beating him violently with clubs, so as to mangle both flesh and blood, but taking care not to shed any blood. Let all the orifices, mouth, eyes, nose, etc., be stopped up with clean and fine linen, impregnated with pitch. Let a quantity of time be strewed under the reclining animal, and then let windows and doors be closed and covered with a thick coating of clay to prevent the access of air or wind. After three weeks have passed, let the house be opened, and let light and fresh air get access to it, except from the side from which the wind blows strongest. Eleven days afterwards, you will find the house full of bees, hanging together in clusters, and nothing left of the ox but horns, bones, and hair. Samson and Delilah, the immortal story of the strongest man in all history, a masterpiece of big screen entertainment. This uh, biblical reference I mentioned earlier occurs in the Old Testament book of Judges. It's a riddle the uh, strong man Samson poses to the Philistines at a banquet and in the 1949 Cecil B. DeMille movie. What riddle? Tell it. Out of the eater came forth meat. Out of the strong came forth sweetness. Out of the eater came forth... <laughs> That's a fool's riddle. Uh, apparently, the Hebrews believed that it was not only bovine carcasses that could spontaneously generate bees. A lion would also do as the uh, strong eater from which uh, sweet honey is generated. Uh, in this case, the lion is one Samson has earlier killed with his bare hands, naturally, and which he uh, later encounters in its uh, decayed form. Uh, swarming with bees. This biblical account rather surprisingly ended up in the label illustration for a uh, honey-like product found in many British households, Lyle's Golden Syrup. Um, given that the label's not changed since the product was introduced in 1885, I suppose consumers have stopped actually looking at the label by now, but it does feature a sprawling lion surrounded by flying insects, something most consumers would probably not like to see on their breakfast tables if they actually looked, biblical story or not. If I dare touch it with my lips, I'm gonna be sick. How can you be sick? You're starving, there's nothing in your stomach. The belief in begonia persisted in some contexts into the 16th century. In uh, 1572, the Italian naturalist Ulisse Aldrovandi relates some comments by a contemporary in Spain, uh, Bernardino Mieres, who uh, found what he regarded as a sort of uh, empirical clue to the process. He squeezed a drone between his fingers to ascertain whether it had a sting when suddenly, some ligaments giving way, a well-formed reddish bull's head was protruded with crooked and expanded horns and a curved proboscis. The persons present were very much astonished and insisted upon him repeating the experiment, whereupon he squeezed five more drones in the same way and saw five more bull's heads protrude from them. So I suppose the bulls within the bees, within the bull, and so on. Make sense? 
Of course, even in Virgil's day, not everyone was convinced that bees arose spontaneously from decaying animals. Some have pointed out that bees, always being on the lookout for nooks and crannies suitable for storing honey, may indeed have made use of animal skulls for the purpose. And while others have suggested that um, other flying insects with visual similarities to bees might have laid eggs and carcasses, uh, Rudyard Kipling's 1922 poem, The Bees and the Flies, humorously describes a naive and greedy beekeeper following the old tradition, uh, checking on the uh, carefully prepared carcass after a number of days, he observes, A busy scene indeed he sees, but not a sign or sound of bees. Worms of the ripper grave unhid, by any kindly coffin lid, obscene and shameless to the light, seethe in insatiate appetite. Through putrid offal, while above, the hissing blowfly seeks his love, whose offspring supping where they supped, consume corruption twice corrupt. Ancient belief even seems to make some room for the notion of bees generated from human corpses, at least when it comes to priestesses of Ceres or Demeter who were referred to as bees, that is, named in Greek, Melissa. Uh, Servius, in his commentary on Virgil's Aeneid, tells this story. There was once a certain old woman called Melissa. She was taught by Ceres the secrets of her ritual and warned not to disclose to anyone the mysteries which she had learned. But when the womenfolk came and entreated her, first by means of flattering words, then by prayers and promises, to reveal to them what Ceres had confided to her, and she persisted in holding her peace, then they became infuriated and tore her asunder. Ceres avenged her fate, by sending a plague upon these women and upon the whole neighborhood. Moreover, she caused bees to be born from the body of Melissa. Now, Demeter is a thonic deity, that is uh, one associated with the underworld and the cycles of things buried and reborn. And, to some extent, bees were regarded in this way by the Greeks, who associated them with caves, as we've seen several times already. And when Neoplatonists came along, bees were associated with the eternal soul going through its cycles of death and regeneration. This sort of association of bees or bee nymphs with such cycles also happens to be hinted at or preserved in the entomologist's name for the uh, early stage of an insect's metamorphosis, the nymph. Uh, but uh, back to practical matters, such as gruesome places where bees might take up residence. According to Herodotus in Book 5 of his Persian Wars, Onesilus, a uh, commander in the revolt against uh, Persian rule of Cyprus, met his uh, end in the town of Amathus, uh, and as uh, Herodotus explains. Now the citizens, having cut off the head of Onesilos, because he had besieged them, took it to Amanthus and suspended it over the gates. And when the head was suspended and had become hollow, a swarm of bees entered it and filled it with honeycomb. When this happened, the Amanthusians consulted the oracle respecting it, and an answer was given them, that they should take down the head and bury it and sacrifice annually to Onesilos as a hero, and if they did so, it would turn out better for them. The Amanthusians did accordingly, and continued to do so until my time. Now, uh, because I can't resist such things, we're going to jump forward countless centuries to provide you a uh, vaguely related account, nothing to do with Greece. Uh, this one is from Ireland, from an August 1832 edition of the Belfast Newsletter. 
A few days ago, when the sexton was digging a grave in Temple Cranery, he came to a coffin that had been there two or three years, which he thought necessary to remove, to make room for the corpse about to be interred. In this operation, he was startled by a great number of wild bees issuing forth from the coffin, and upon lifting the lid, it was found that they had formed their combs in the dead man's skull and mouth, which were full. The nest was made of the hair of the head, together with shavings that had been put in the coffin with the corpse. Sounds a bit like the uh, Candyman filled with bees. Oh, and a fun fact. The Trigona necrophaga, a species of bee colloquially known as, as the vulture bee, does make honey from the rotting flesh of carrion and presumably people. That's perhaps not the kind of honey you'd like to sample, but in defense of this animal, it's at least a species of bee that doesn't sting. Oh, what a glorious thing to be, a healthy grown-up, busy, busy bee, visiting the picnics, quite a little tease, raising little lumps on the Boy Scouts' knees. I'd like to be a busy, busy bee. Now, uh, let's consider a few more corpses swimming in honey, uh, that is, uh, the use of immersion in honey as a method of preserving human bodies. A uh, not unheard of approach, apparently, in ancient times. The body of Alexander the Great, for instance, was famously said to have undergone this treatment. Uh, Some sources cite this as a legend of Muslim lands, and I've also seen it dismissed as a bit of uh, speculation arising in the 19th century, but I do find it mentioned in a 4th century work, albeit a uh, work of fiction, or a fiction spun around the facts of uh, Alexander's life. It's the Romance of Alexander, attributed to the uh, Pseudo-Calithcines. It's uh, told in first person in Book 3. And I command that they shall make for the internment of my body a coffin of fine gold, 250 talents in weight, and let them lay the body of me, Alexander the King of the Macedonians, in it, and let them fill it with white honey. There's more than one instance of this reported in Sparta, uh, King Agesilaus II was said to have been laid in honey when he died in, in uh, 360 BC. And there's a story about Cleomenes I, who, when crowned king in uh, 519 BC, was said to have uh, betrayed his uh, lifelong friend, Archimedes. Uh, he'd promised Archimedes that, should he become king, he would share rulership, working with him as if the two men were of a single mind. Uh, Claudius Elianus records how that worked out in his uh, various histories. Being now possessed of the government, he killed his friend, and cutting off his head, put it into a vessel of honey. And whensoever he went to do anything, He stooped down to the vessel and said what he intended to do, affirming that he had not broken his promise, nor was forsworn, and he advised with the head. Byzantine Emperor Justin II was also said to have been uh, submerged in uh, spiced honey when he died in 598. And uh, going back a bit to about 50 BC, we have the case of uh, Aristobulus II, a high priest and king of Judea. While uh, fighting against Roman rule in Syria, he was imprisoned and then later released by Julius Caesar. Uh, But before he could return to Judea, he was poisoned by agents of Caesar's rival, General Pompey, after which he ended up marinating in honey. And as it turned out, Aristobulus happened to be the brother of Miriam, the wife of King Herod, involved in another case of uh, honey embalming. Uh, After rumors of an adulterous affair began to circulate, the king's wife took her own life by throwing herself from a palace tower. And despite the infidelity, Herod's love for Miriam only grew into a sort of madness after her death. The um, historian Josephus writes, For he would frequently call for her and frequently lament for her in a most 
indecent manner. Indecent is the uh, operative word here, according to uh, commentary in the Talmud. For uh, seven years, Herod is said to have retained his dead wife's body preserved in honey for purposes that are hotly debated. From the uh, third chapter of the uh, Talmud's Bhavabhatra. There are those who say he engaged in necrophilia with her corpse. And there are those who say he did not engage in necrophilia with her corpse. According to those who say he engaged in necrophilia with her corpse, the reason that he preserved her body was to gratify his carnal desires. Well, I, I don't think Mrs. Carswell likes the sort of B stories I've been presenting, so uh, let's consider a more wholesome aspect of bees. Throughout the centuries, the functioning of the hive was held up by different writers as a model for humanity working together in productive harmony. Uh, thanks in part to the notion of the bee's spontaneous generation through Begonia, uh, Christian writers regarded the bees as a model of virginity. Uh, teachers of philosophical or sacred truth were said to speak honeyed words or have a honeyed tongue as is suggested in a number of legends, uh, we're told that bees alighted on the lips of the infant Plato in his cradle, betokening the sweet truths he would later utter. And the same story is also told of St. Ambrose. But the bees' nasty sting is also not omitted from Christian legend. One of the many uh, patron saints of beekeeping, I think there are about six of them, is... Um, the 5th century uh, French prelate, Saint Medard. An excellent 1899 book on bees and culture, The Honeymakers by Margaret Morley, relates one of Medard's legends. When a thief by night had stolen Saint Medard's bees, the bees set upon the malefactor and eagerly pursuing him, which way soever he ran, would not cease stinging him until they had made him go back again to their master's house. And there, falling prostrate at his feet, submissively to cry him mercy for the crime committed. An even more dramatic story is told of the 6th century Irish saint and beekeeper, St. Gobnet, sometimes called Abigail. And Sabine Baring Gould retells this tale in his 1834 volume, A Book of Folklore. Um, it begins with a local clan leader calling on the saint's aid as a hostile war party approaches the community. In this field was a beehive, and the saint granted the request by turning the bees into spearmen who issued from the hive with all the ardor of warriors, fell on the enemy, and put him to root. After the battle, the conquering chief revisited the spot whence he had received such miraculous aid. When he found that the straw hive had been metamorphosed into an article shaped like a helmet and composed of brass. The helmet, he goes on to say, was turned into a sacred vessel for water, a few drops of which on a dying person's lips would ensure their entrance to heaven. In 1623, Charles Butler, sometimes called the father of English beekeeping, came out with a wonderful book on bees with a wonderful title, The Feminine Monarchy or The History of Bees, showing their admirable nature and properties, their generation and colonies, their government, loyalty, art, industry, enemies, wars, magnanimity, and together with the right ordering of them from time to time, and the sweet profit arising thereof. In this volume, he relates a story of a superstitious beekeeper with ailing hives who attempts a bit of folk magic to restore them. Uh, receiving the host during mass, she retains the wafer in her mouth, slips out of the church, and hurries to deposit it within her hives. Butler insists that it not only resolves the sickness afflicting the hives, but that when the beekeeper later opens these hives, She saw there 
most strange to be seen. A chapel built by the bees with an altar in it. The walls adorned by marvelous skill of architecture with windows conveniently set in their places. Also, a door and a steeple with bells. And the host being laid upon the altar, the bees, making a sweet noise, flew round about it. Butler also relates a tale involving the uh, Blessed Bonicella of uh, Trequanda in uh, Tuscany. At uh, some point, uh, many years after her death in 1300, it was noted that the marble of her sepulchre had developed gaps or cracks and that bees were swarming in and out of the tomb. When the slab was moved to investigate, Butler reports that the bees had formed in the hand of the dead virgin a beautiful waxen communion cup. As we're nearing the end of the program, some of you may be wondering uh, when I'm going to tell you all about the telling of the bees, which I now will do. This was a tradition with those who kept hives of announcing the news of a family member's death to the bees so that they could uh, also participate in the mourning. It was common in England, Ireland, and Wales and made its way to the United States but it was also a custom on the continent in Germany, Holland, uh, France, Switzerland, and uh, Bohemia, the part of the Czech Republic once under German influence. In some regions, there were uh, formulaic words to be used, but I don't believe this is always the case. Um, in some accounts mention uh, the family member to whom the task has fallen, singing some sort of uh, mournful song to the bees or dressing the hives in uh, the black crepe used in mourning. Sometimes foods from the funeral feast would be offered at the hives, and if beekeepers failed to follow the tradition, the bees would cease to thrive. And on the continent, bees would also be told of a happy events such as weddings when the hives might also be decorated. The ritual would be more strictly enforced if the death were that of the beekeeper himself. If the bees were denied this courtesy and later would discover the omission, they would abandon the property. Hives uh, might also be turned to face the direction of the uh, beekeeper's uh, funeral procession to encourage a sort of uh, symbolic participation in the rites. A few more recent stories we'll look at now suggest that the bees might on occasion see to it themselves that they are included in last farewells. A 1961 story from the British newspaper Shrewsbury Chronicle provides uh, this interesting account of the funeral of a local beekeeper named Sam Rogers. On the day after his funeral, a memorial service was being held in the church when it was noticed that swarm after swarm of bees were coming from the direction of Sam Rogers' home a mile and a half away as the crow flies. They settled in a great swarm all over the flowers on the grave, to the astonishment of the congregation. The uh, writer goes on to quote an expert of the uh, Shropshire Beekeepers Association who points out that in the cold month of February it's extremely rare for sluggish bees to leave their hives. Perhaps the article concludes the phenomenon described is tied with the children of the Rogers family visiting the hives to tell the bees. A 1956 story from Tennessee published in the North Adams Transcript relates something similar regarding the funeral of John Zepka, who hand-raised, worked with, and loved bees, and was widely known in the section as a man who had a way with them. When his funeral cortege reached the grave in St. Stanislaus Cemetery, they found the funeral tent literally swarming with bees. They were all over the tent ceiling and clinging to the profuse floral sprays. They made no attempt to annoy the mourners, just remained immobile. Persons who saw the spectacle declared they had never seen anything like it before. 
Then, if we go back to 1895, we have uh, another American story from the uh, Kansas City Times. The funeral was for a young boy, not a beekeeper, but the connection with bees becomes clear in the story. On the way to the grave, a swarm of bees gathered on the lid of the coffin, and there remained. When the cemetery was reached, all efforts to drive the bees from the coffin were without avail, and the pallbearers were forced to take charge of the coffin with the bees swarming about them. And before the remains were deposited in the grave, every pallbearer suffered, being stung in more than one place on the face and hands. The bees clung so tenaciously to the coffin that many of them were buried with the body of the dead boy. The dead boy was very fond of bees, and whether the bees were thus showing their grief over the loss of their young friends, or what the significance of such an act on the part of the bees, is a mystery yet unsolved. To wrap up, I wanted to talk about a special kind of honey, a psychoactive honey that's generating a real buzz on the internet and on certain podcasts. Oh, madhoney.net. There you go. There it is. Mad honey from Nepal. Order that shit, son. (laughs) Okay, we'll 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 order some. We're going to get some mad honey. I like that. Now I'm very excited. Thing organic like that, I'm totally into it. Yeah. Strongest, most potent mad honey available. We're gonna get some mad honey. I like that. Now I'm very excited. We're gonna get some mad honey. I like that. Now I'm very excited. I like that. Now I'm very excited. Joe Rogan and friends are talking about something also called cliff honey because uh, that's where it's found on cliffs in Nepal, or it's also called Delibal in Turkey, another country that produces it. Its uh, effects are produced by uh, compounds called uh, gryonotoxins, which are found in certain plants from which the bees have gathered nectar, that's uh, rhododendron, azalea, and oleander. The uh, ancient Roman writer Pliny not only wrote about a similar-sounding honey from Crete, remarking on the uh, debilitating intoxication it caused, and even speculated that these effects were caused by uh, bees gathering nectar from the same family of plants. There are enough hints in the ancient literature to uh, raise speculation, as it has online, that this uh, mad honey was a uh, sacramental entheogen employed in the mystery cults or to induce visions shared by uh, ancient oracles like that at Delphi. Naturally, as a drug associated with exotic locales, you'll find online the Obligatory Vice video featuring a hipster journalist trekking through breathtaking scenery and getting high. But there are also scenes of those who've imbibed throwing up, uh, just to let you know that it's still edgy and dangerous. You'll find here and there online warnings of uh, lowered heart rate paralysis and unconsciousness. But um, whatever substance it is that's now being sold in countless web stores as mad honey seems to generally produce only mild dizziness and sedation, uh, according to the online testimonials, at least. (laughs) I feel very dizzy. I'm very silly, too. I feel like my head is going around my body. My mind is, like, going very fast. Actually, the greatest threat to those dabbling in mad honey would seem to be the danger of uh, being cheated by shady distributors. Oh, uh, caveat emptor, friends. This looks like mucusy syrup like i don't even know and then there's all this black gunk at the bottom like isn't honey supposed to be pure or is this dirt or did someone like ash their cigarette into this while they were looking through it at customs do not uh, buy mad honey it's like someone tampered with it so yeah, i can't even rob me twenty seven hundred dollars refund for it shipping and then this stuff at the bottom like them, what is so dirt seven hundred they continued uh, to extort money like, from me and tell me to send them another set of caused me emotional stress. They've caused me financial stress. We're gonna get some mad honey. I like that. Now I'm very excited. Being just as busy as we can be, flying out the garden, sweet sympathy, taking back the honey to the dear old wee.
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and you might have the uh, opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. That really helps us out. As I've mentioned, Patreon support is essential to keeping this show coming out regularly with all those uh, hundred hours of work that I mention all the time. You can find those uh, Patreon and social media links on our website, of course. And uh, for for the benefits, there's the book, the mystery kit, the candle, the soundscapes, the bonus episode. And we're going to be uh, bringing back the Bone and Sickle shirts, which sold out rather quickly last time. I'll be uh, posting a link of the image if you haven't seen it. It's a nice illustration of the relics of St. Notburger, a skeleton in uh, 17th century dress holding up a sickle. Um, because we're doing a limited printing again, the shirt will only be available to Patreon supporters, but I'll remind you that subscriptions begin at only $1 and can be canceled at any time. Orders will be placed through the Patreon site when the shirts are available at the end of May. And I also want to welcome our new subscribers, as I did in our last episode, with a little bit about each individual, just to give our listeners an idea of the company you keep while listening. Of course, you can also join our Facebook group if you'd like to see some of those faces. Um, so let's see. I have uh, Benito Serino, who is... A writer whose work has appeared on Image Comics and Grunge.com and the co-host of the Biblical Literature Podcast, Apocrypals, and a frequent contributor to the Weird Christmas Podcast. And there's Tyler Lomanak, who says he's... A huge history buff and avid tabletop role player. And your topics give me fantastic ideas for my games. And the curiously named Rodent of the Astro Waste, who I believe I've seen on the excellent Facebook group Folklore Revival, um, he is... A supporter of the Order of the Good Death, historical documentalist located in Paris, working in the archives of BNF, the National French Library. And we also want to thank our new subscribers who didn't get a chance yet to tell me a bit about themselves. They are Melissa Richardson, Andrea Walter, Geraldine Parks, and Serena. So, thank you. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>